0: Let me pray, and then we're going to be in the doctrine of man today, the doctrine of man. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought us here to be able to uh, gather together as a corporate body to worship you. We pray that um, as we hear from your word today, that um, you would send your spirit beforehand and you would go before and and move our hearts and change our hearts. We know that we need um, desperately all the time to be reminded of your goodness uh, in the gospel. And so I pray that as we look into your word today, that you would, you would take me and move me out of the way and that you would speak completely and that everything I say would be from you and for you and for your glory. I pray that as we look on and try to understand the doctrine of man better this morning, that it would impact us in a way that maybe we've never even dreamed of. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I have wronged the relationship with someone, I feel like it's my job and my duty to make it right. I feel like I'm the one that needs to go restore it. So in elementary school, whenever I'm out on the playground at recess, favorite subject, I pick up the dirt clod and I nail Tony in the side of the head I am the one that threw the dirt clod and decided to hit Tony in the side of the head with the dirt clod right in the ear. It's not Tony's job to say, come to me and say, you know, back then I was John, John, you, uh you totally nailed me in the head with the dirt clod, so I'm going to be the one that's going to take the the initiative to come over here and restore our relationship since you decided to hit me in the ear. No, like it's my job, since I'm the one that threw it and thought it would be hilarious, I have now wronged the relationship. He's upset, and so it's my job to go and restore the relationship. And we know that this is the case as you go through. Perhaps it was middle school or high school. Whenever you were old enough, to look at the other person that's the other gender and say, well, that's interesting. I've never thought that they were cute or pretty or handsome before. I've always just wanted to, you know, whatever. Like, now you think, oh, that's neat. And so you're in your first relationship, and you're, you're a relationship novice. I mean, you have no idea what to say, what's appropriate. And you say, I can't believe you're wearing that or something, you know. Well, that never really ends the novice part. But, um, like, you say something, and you realize, oh, no, I've wronged the relationship. And so now it's my job, since I've wronged the relationship, to go to the offended party and do my best to restore the relationship. As you've go, gone through marriage, I'm 15 years in, and I'm, I'm always messing up. I mean, it, it never ends. Like, not to try to make us depressed, but like, that's just part of being who we are. Like, we know as we go through life, um, and we interact with people, you're going to continually say things, do things, and you're going to wrong the relationship, and you're the one that has to go take the initiative. I, I, I've taught it to my children. I, I, I want them. I don't Perfectly disciplined. I wish I could. But whenever I say something, you know, to the child where I should have said this, that would be more gospel centered or maybe more. Um Kind or gentle or patient And anger because people saw it And I'm embarrassed and I'm a sinful prideful person I say something fast and then they say Dad but you say you're not supposed to do that You said that you're supposed to do it this way You shouldn't and so I'm like why do you know all these things Child and so like all of a sudden I'm I'm, But I'm the one that did the wrong thing And I have to go to the child And say daddy messes up Daddy's sorry I need to restore and just as I've got five so let's say you know child four Hits child two or child one Three whatever if they are the ones that don't does it, I, I make them go and restore the relationship. And this is, we know this. This is intuitive in us that if I've done something, your parents have driven it into you perhaps, or um, society has taught us that whenever I wrong the relationship with someone else, I've got to go and do everything I can to try to restore it. And that works on the horizontal level. But what the problem is, is that we try to take that, which I think is right, and take it and shove it into our vertical relationship. And we say, God, I've wronged the relationship here, so I need to do everything I can to make it right. But if you do, that's religion, and that's not the gospel. Religion is, I have wronged the relationship with God, I feel like I have to restore it. The good news of the gospel is, I have wronged the relationship, God restores it. And man, it is just so hard It is so difficult for us to grasp that, to believe that, to trust that, to really accept it. Because all we want to do is like, surely there's something I can do. Maybe I can do this or I can do that. I can be nicer to that person. I can pray more often. As long as I start doing these lists for you, God, certainly you're going to be more happy with me. I'm going to do what I need to do to make it right. I've messed up. But the gospel says, God is the initiator and the one who comes down and restores the relationship with us, that we don't do it. And as a matter of fact, we're incapable of doing it. We can't restore the relationship. All of it's made possible through Christ. But the good news is, is that God, even though we couldn't, decided that because he loves us so much, that he is going to restore the relationship with us. And this is perfect example of the very first time it ever happens is right there in the very beginning in, cha- in Genesis chapter 3. We'll be in Genesis 2, so if you want to, you know, open up to Genesis 2, you can. We'll be there in a minute. But um, in Genesis chapter 3, where, whenever the fall of man happens, um, as soon as they sinned willingly against God, they, um, it says in, in, in ver- chapter 3 verse 7, I think, it says, and immediately after they had sinned, they realized that they were naked. And this was actually there, it says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, this is a huge thing. They didn't know this before because it said at the very end of chapter 2, right after God joined them as husband and wife, it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. And all of a sudden, as soon as their eyes were opened and they died spiritually and they realized they had sinned against God, it says that they realized they were naked. And they went and tried to cover themselves um, with some branches and things. But in God's grace, he says, even though you sinned against me, I'm going to come and restore this relationship. And we can immediately see, immediately see him restoring the relationship right there in Genesis chapter 3. If you look at verse 21, it says that God comes, and they realize that. He makes them loin, makes them cloths of animal skins and covers them. The immediate re- restoration of that initial thing has happened. But he also, in chapter 3, verse 15, before that, he makes this amazing promise where he says, the serpent's going to try to crush the the... the coming Savior, and that Savior is going to crush the head of the serpent. Um, The serpent is going to try to crush the woman's, um, and the the coming Savior will crush the head of the serpent. And all that is just called... big theological word, proto-evangelium, first proto-evangelium gospel. That's just the very first time as you're going through the Bible that God tells us the gospel in that Jesus will be the one that will come and crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin, and that by faith in him we can one day be saved. So in chapter 3, as soon as the relationship is broken and been wronged, God immediately, he's the one that comes and restores it through acts of common grace by giving them the clothes in 321, and the promise of the gospel of the Savior that would restore all things in 315. Perfect example, right there, right away. Um, And so today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of man. And the doctrine of man kind of finds its beginnings all the way back there in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're going to look at a little bit primarily in 2 today. But the main thing that I want us to kind of get, this won't be on the screen, but the main thing I want us to get and understand when we're talking about the doctrine of man, is that God has chosen to save man for his glory to make us a part of his people, to make us as a part of his people, to be a part of his church, and as we're a part of his people and a part of his church, he wants us to grow in holiness. This is one of the key points, one of the main things I want us to understand as we're looking at the doctrine of man. And as we're looking at the doctrine of man, as we experience life ourselves, maybe you're, you know, in high school, maybe you're in college, maybe you're just a recent graduate or whatever, immediately you start asking yourselves questions like, why am I here? What's the purpose of, of, of existing? All men ask this question. The doctrine of man answers these questions. Why am I here? Where does this guilt come from whenever I do things wrong? Hopefully you're still experiencing that. Where does this guilt come from? Or maybe even more powerful, the concept of love is incredible. But the emotive feelings that love, um, when it's rushing around inside of me that I feel towards people, where does that come from? That's amazing. The idea that I could love someone, like as soon as my first child, or actually all of them, but as soon as they're born, like when you look at them, I didn't know you and I'd never seen you before, but the very first time I saw you, the love that I feel for you is bigger than, you know, the first time I saw you, I, whatever, I wasn't like that madly in love with you or crazy about you. But the first time I saw my child, it's like skyrocket amounts of love. And you think, well, where does that come from? How does that happen? The doctrine of man helps us understand all these kinds of questions about who we are. What are these things swirling around inside of us? Why do we have these emotive feelings? Why am I here? What's the point of life? What am I going to do all these kinds of questions are kind of answered in the doctrine of man now, if you've been here for a little bit of time at remedy, you, you probably have heard us as we've gone through four years of teaching, five years, almost five years of teaching. Um, generally, when we talk about man um, we we try to stay balanced, but as people that are in the quote, reformed camp, and you may not know what that means, but basically just means people that believe in what's called the total depravity of man, which basically just means we're really sinful. We know that we're sinful, and we believe that we're sinful. So um, when you're talking about the gospel, which we try to talk about, which is the good news that Jesus Christ came and died, you have to, when you talk about good news, it has to in. Matt Chandler says it has to invade invade bad spaces. It has to come into places where there's you think things are great and bring some really bad news in order for the good news to be good. If it doesn't do that, then it's not good news. And so as we talk about that, that here at Remedy, as it invades that bad space, as the bad news starts unfolding, that's the fact that we're we're sinful. We you hear verses things like Genesis six five. We'll, we'll, Quote these verses. Um, they only did evil continually all the time. That's talking about the people in Genesis. Uh, you'll hear us as we talk about this idea of being totally depraved from the, because of the fall in Genesis 3. Romans 3 says things like this about, about man. And this is kind of the bad side about uh, the doctrine of man. It says this, talking about man. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So if you're going to talk about the doctrine of man, you hear that and it just sounds like, well, we're garbage. I mean, that's just, (laughs) that's terrible news. Doctrine of man, we're awful. Great doctrine, fud. Way to go. I feel good day. Um, So, we have that side. But then there was also, two weeks ago when I was preaching about creation, I was talking about the days of creation. When you get to day six, this was the last thing I said about man, because we were the pinnacle of creation, we're the last thing. And it says not just that we were good, but that we were very good. And this was my point when I said, and hopefully you've heard this language kind of swirling around at Remedy, where it says that man is the apex, the pinnacle, the top the summit, the crown, the most amazing part, the best part of all created things. And you're like, well, if that's the case, you're crazy, Fudd. You're like schizophrenic guy. You're, you're, which one is it? Because that sounds like it's completely the opposite things. And so what I'm hoping to do, because it's both, it's absolutely both, is to try to bring some balance in between both of those things today and help us understand the doctrine of man that yes, what's true of us is that we're sinful, But also what's true of us is that when I say that we're all these things, the top, the pinnacle, the apex, the summit, the crown of creation, that we're made in the image of God. The Latin is the imago Dei. And because man has in him the imago Dei, nothing else in creation has it. No animals have it. No trees have it. No oceans. Man himself, and only man, is created with the image of God. That means we have his likeness. We, we, we are like God in ways. I'm not saying we are God. We're not. But we're like him. We're rational. We love. We feel. We desire. N- things don't have that, but we do. And that's how we're like God. We're not omnipotent, right? We're not all powerful. But, I mean, some of us are powerful. Like, Brian Powell is powerful. He's huge. But some people aren't. Like, we're not all-knowing. We're not omniscient. But we are able to gain knowledge, like we were able to think and, and gain knowledge. So in senses, we're like him. And so my goal today is to try to bring some balance between the two of, of total depravity and the Imago day, and that they're not controvers- controversial or contradictory, um, but instead there's balance in between. And so today we're going to look at um, really uh, four notes on the doctrine of man and how that relates to the Imago Dei, how that relates to the image of God. Now... Before we get started, I want to make one little uh, prefatory comment, Um, and I got this from a book called Doctrine by Mark Driscoll, and in his chapter on the doctrine of man, he, he opens up with this, and I think this is important for us, because we are so, I mean, we can't help it, but we are such products of our day. Um, that he wants us to make sure that we're thinking this way. He says, it's important to note, this is in his chapter on the doctrine of man, it's important to note the historical development of the Western understanding of the human person, which which is seen nearly entirely today in terms of an autonomous individual, rather than members of a community. So whenever the West, in 2013, thinks about man... We always think about ourselves as individuals, autonomous, able to do things for myself. When we think about man, we say, I'm an individual. And we don't think about man as in a community of people. We always want to pull ourselves out, and we're all kind of islands unto ourselves as individuals. And he's, import- he's saying it's important to realize that that's just a recent phenomenon. Eastern thought, and which is really our Bible, um, always thought of... In, in the doctrine, or the doctrine of man, and really all these kinds of things in community. Think about this: God presents Himself to us in the person of, a, of the, in, in the form of the Trinity, that He's in community always. So we're supposed to think of ourselves as the doctrine of man, not as autonomous selves that like we're products of Maslow trying to achieve self-actualization, but instead we are members of a biblical community as Christians. Only saved, radically saved by the gospel, and that the only reconciliation that we have or desire that we're shooting for or end goal is not self-actualization of our autonomous self, but instead reconciled back, restored back to God, and He's the one that does it, not us. And Maslow is we do it. But we talked about in the very beginning. You don't write you don't write this relationship. God does, He's the one that restores it. And so we have to realize. That it's um, an extraordinary leap in the last 300 years for the West to start thinking about themselves individualistically instead of in a community. And just the ramifications of how that um, impacts the way we think about ourselves and and even others. Now, um, we're going to be in, as a primary text that kind of anchors us in, um, in Genesis 2, 2. Back whenever we started this doctrine series, I don't know when it was, like two months ago or so, Jack started with the doctrine of the word. And as he started, he said, there'll be some weeks when we're doing a doctrine that I can teach that entire doctrine in one p- specific passage. And he did that week. And he talked about the doctrine of the word and he did it all from 2 Timothy 3, uh, 14 through 17 or so. And he, he made some some key points about what we believe about the doctrine of the word of the Bible from that particular text. But sometimes we can't do that. Like last, I don't know, three weeks ago, or four weeks ago, and I talked about the Trinity. There's no verse of Scripture on the Trinity. It's just a concept inside of the Bible, and so we had to use different verses to be able to talk about the Trinity. And today, that's going to be the case. I'm going to talk about the doctrine of man, and I'm going to use some different texts to kind of make my four points. However... I want to start with one particular text as my foundation in Genesis chapter 2. And so in Genesis chapter 2, where we are, starting at verse 5, what's happened in Genesis chapter 1 is God's given this really big overview of creation over the six days in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he's going to drill down for us right there in day 6. The creation of man and help us have a better understanding of how day six happens when he creates man. We're going to pick up right there in verse five. You can see it right in verse five. When no bush of the field was in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And here it is, verse seven. This is the, the zoomed in view of how man was created. 2-7. Then the Lord God, Yahweh, that's all capital letters, Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He put us together by the ground and literally breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And that's when we started, Adam, started breathing. And he was a man. And the man became a living creature. That's how man started. Verse 8. And by the way, man in Hebrew is Adam. That's why we call him Adam. It just means man. So anybody that's named Adam, you can just call him man if you want. Um, verse, <laughs> verse nine. Uh, and out of the ground the Lord made it p- made, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of no- and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to skip this next section. It just talks about some rivers um, down to verse fifteen. So now we've talked about man. I'm going to make some comments because all these things are important. Verse 15, it says, the Lord, that's Yahweh God, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Here it is, to work it and keep it. Now, the vocalization of those two Hebrew words, to work it and to keep it, can be revocalized just a little bit. John Sailhammer points this out that you can re- rework those vocalizations. And Moses, as he wrote, did this on purpose. He ch- he picked those two particular words to work it and keep it. That if you revocalize them, it can also be understood to worship and obey. So as he's saying, he put God, he put Adam in the garden to work and keep it, to worship and obey. Now. It's important that we notice when it says he put Adam in the garden to work. This is before the fall. It was, it's not like work is now, Genesis 3, now we got to work. Oh, you got to work now. Man's a sinner. That's our punishment because we're sinners. It's time to work. We could be sitting on the couch, but thanks a lot, Adam. And that's not how it's supposed to be. It's Genesis 2.15. Before the fall, God has created man to be industrious. He wants us to be industrious and do stuff. And he says, I'm putting you in this garden. Here's a garden. I want you to enjoy this garden, explore this garden. I want you to be industrious in this garden. I want you to work it and keep it and do all the things necessary. And as you do it, it's an act of worship and obedience. It's the same thing for us. All of our work that he gives us, that's not sinful is an act of us to be worshipful and obedient to him. So he puts him in the garden, and the Lord God, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, are, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Wow, I mean, everything there. You can have whatever you want. But, 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it of it, you shall surely die. So, There's all kinds of trees everywhere. And he's like, one rule, Adam. One rule. You can do whatever you want in this garden. Only one thing you can't do is eat this tree. That's it. You can have all the rest. It's like putting my child in and saying, you can do everything you want, but don't do this one thing. And it's not that great. Look at all the other stuff. What are they going to do? Like that's the first thing they're going to do. So my point is this. As God put man in there, there's also a sense in which he told them, there's commands I want you to keep. We see that. Don't do this. That's a command. And so um, God, as we're made in the image of God, gave us commandments even before the fall that he wants us to keep. Now, um, the first thing that I want you to see, if you look back with me at 126, it should be on the same page, hopefully, 126, and this is kind of the, the 30,000 view picture of creation. 126, when, that, when all that happened and when we were created, and Genesis 1 says, then God said, let us, the us is plural trinity, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we know that when that happened in Genesis 2, that we were created in the image of God. Man was created, as it says, in his likeness, in his um, representation, and in his representation, it means also that we literally, as man, represent God. Like we, in some ways, represent God here on earth, showing people what God is like. Um, even unbelievers do that in some senses. Obviously, Christians can understand the worldview of how that fully should be, should be done. So anyway, the first thing I want us to see then is this. The doctrine of man teaches us this, and the Imago Dei teaches this. First thing is, man is made in the image of God man is made in the image of God. And this is, um, this is absolutely huge. So what I'm going to do now under point one here is I'm going to give us some understandings about what this means. What are some of the things that that means? What are some important notes? If we were literally created in the image of God, that means in his image and likeness, we're not God, but we are the pinnacle of all creation. And we are able to think and reason. We have a soul, all these things. What are some of the um, implications and notes that we need to understand if we're made in the image of God. The first one is that we were created by the Trinity. And since we were created by the Trinity who's in community, we should also be in community. The next one is that we are created as persons. We weren't created as robots. We weren't created as trees. We weren't created as cats, praise the Lord. We we're created as persons. created as persons. And so since we're created as persons, we were also created by a personal God. So this, this thing inside of you, as being a person that says, why do I want relationships so much? Why is it that I just like being around people, certain people, all the time? Like I need to be around them whenever I'm not around people and I'm always by myself. I get lonely. I get sad. There's something in me that wants to be around people. God's God's created you as a person, a relational being horizontally, but that's also vertical. God wants you to be in relationship with him as well. So we're created by a personal God. He is personal. If we're in his image and we're personal, then certainly he is the most personal being ever. The next one is that we were originally made without sin. This is, the image of God teaches us that before the fall, we were made without sin. We certainly had the ability to sin, but in that time, Adam was not a sinner. And the gospel tells us that All of this brokenness and this deep angst and these feelings of, why do I sin? How come I do this? It's all within you a desire to go back to that original state. I want to go back to the way it was. I don't like this. And that's what, it's the promised future for us all, is that we will be like we were originally, but reconciled by Jesus. Jesus is the one that brings us back to that state. So we were originally made without sin, and that is the way we're intended to be in the final consummation of all things, without sin again. Not like, not like Jesus, but still glorified. Um, as moral image bearers, we're also given commands to obey. Commands aren't some kind of like punishment um, in a sense, but God does give people commands. And what he wants when he gives us these commands is for us to worshipfully obey them, not look at them as some evil taskmaster that's just so awful that he gives us things that he wants us to do. Um, they're in the New Testament as well, commands. They're not just an Old Testament thing. Some other things that God, um, as being in his image bears is this, that God has created man as builders and adventurers. When he put him in there, he put him in the, um, in, in the garden in his image and says, I want you to go in there and work it and keep it. It's like he's given us creation, and as his image bearers, we're created in such a way that he wants us to be builders. Now, some of us are better than builders than others. I'm, I'm awful. The other, our other elder, Jack, like he's, hey, I think I'll build the kids an ark tonight. So he, kids, last night I built you Noah's ark. Look at it. It's actual size. I just made it, threw it together, cut a couple boards. Like I would just hammer in my nail and I'd quit. But Jack can like do these amazing things. I look at some of the stuff he does, and I'm like, how do you even know how to do that? But the point is, is that every single one of us, because we have the image of God, we're able to build, and God wants us to. This is all Genesis 2. He wants you to be industrious, to build, to take those deep desires to build and explore, not in sinful ways, but certainly in ways that magnify his glory, and use those gifts as as much as you possibly can. The image of God teaches us to be builders and explorers of this good creation that he's given to us. The next thing that the image of God shows us is that God created us to be reproductive people. And so since we're reproductive people, we know that he wants us to have children. The first thing he tells um, them is be fruitful and multiply in Genesis chapter 1. And so this also explains if we're made in the image of God and we produce children that are in the image of God and people and everybody is made in the image of God. They all have dignity. They all have value. They all have worth. And so since every created person has dignity, value, and worth because they have the image of God, there's just something inside. Of, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be political here. I, I, I shy away from political things. But there's no doubt that all of us inside of us know, well, then I'm supposed to protect people. I'm just supposed to protect people alive that are elderly or the unborn. Because they all have dignity, value, and worth because they're made in the image of God. And being in the image of God is something amazing because it's God. The next thing that being made in the image of God means um, is that uh, God has created us also to be creative. Some of you are quite gifted when it comes to the arts. Whether it's um, doing drawings or playing music or whatever. I mean... I'm quite in awe of those that can do those things. I, I can't do anything, and it's very frustrating. I try to, and like, I talk to you, and like, hey, you just do this in your head. Just, just draw what's in your head. And I draw, you know, scratches, and it looks awful. And I'm like, I can't do it! Um, but some people have the ability to do it. And so, since that's there, since God has given you the ability to be creative, and you know the creator, we as Christians are supposed to be on the forefront of the arts. We are supposed to be, culture makers as Christians we don't we don't run from culture God created culture it's not in and of itself a bad thing instead he wants Christians to be part of making culture from a Christian worldview so I was reading in a a book called Center Church um, by Tim Keller and he has some things that he he says in regard to Christians and their work and and how it looks in culture making I just want to read you a couple things that he says because I mean, these things are unbelievably insightful. Um, The first thing is that uh, in regard to working, he says, because we know Christ and we've been saved by the gospel, the gospel or the good news that Jesus came and died for us changes our motivation for work. Outside of Christ, we will say our work is our identity. Who are you? I'm a blacksmith. Who are you? I'm a, you know, whatever. I'm a shoemaker. But it changes our identity, like, We said, instead, who are you? I'm a believer. My identity isn't wrapped up in my work. My identity is in Christ. And so now that the gospel teaches me it's not in who I am and how industrious I am and what I can do, that's not my identity. I'm free to do those things, but my identity is believer. And now I'm free to do those things and enjoy and then work hard as I possibly can in doing them. But that doesn't give me my identity. And if I fail at it, all of a sudden, I'm not identity-less because my identity is rooted in Christ and the gospel. The next thing that um, this idea of culture making and works, this is all still under number one. I know I'm killing you, but it's still all number one, Um, is that it changes our conception of work in that um, any and every profession that's not sinful, that contributes to the flourishing of humans, is a good job. So I have to throw in that caveat that when I say any and every profession, that's not sinful. Because like hitmen are not contributing to the flourishing of man. Um, and, and they certainly, I don't think, as a God-honoring profession. Um, uh, I know you can make cases for armies and wars and stuff, but I'm just talking about in general, all right? Sometimes we think, hey, you know, I just, I dig ditches, or it seems like my job that I have isn't significant when I look at, you know, CEOs or Steve Jobs or whatever. They're they're making huge impacts on the world, and so my job doesn't seem really significant. But what he's he's trying to teach us is that Christianity changes our conception of work in that um, every job is glorifying to God because they, they all move the ball forward if you will and the promotion of human flourishing and so every job every job is important i said this in first service but i'm going to say it again even stay-at-home moms if you don't bring home a dollar to your family you are certainly promoting the flourishing of humans and it's absolutely key and important and it changes your conception of work. You don't think to yourself, unless I make money, I'm not contributing and God's not pleased. No, no. Every job that we have is pleasing unto the Lord. The next thing is um, also the gospel as Christians as we work hard. It teaches us that we're to operate in the highest ethical standards. Christianity Teaches us that whenever we're there, we show up on time. We work hard the whole time. We don't leave early. We don't gossip about the people that don't do that. We don't steal the stapler. We don't take their pencils. We buy our own stapler. Like it's he's paying us. I can buy my own stapler. I don't need to take it because you don't give me enough money. Like that's not how it works. Instead, we get there. We work hard. As this is what it teaches us. We do what's asked of us. We we don't talk bad about the people that don't. And as Christians, that's how we're supposed to work. We we work hard. We're industrious. And we have the highest ethics when it comes to it. So salesmen, we operate as, a, as Christians on a Christian ethic. Um, even in capitalistic society where you have fluctuation on your margin that you can make, you do that in a Christian way. You don't just hose people to see how much money you can get out of them. We have to as Christians, even in our society, have the highest ethical place, uh, standards when it comes to integrity of work. Um, another thing in arts and culture making is this. This is the last one. Is that the gospel is the basis for reconceiving the very way in which our work is done. Instead of doing work in an idolatrous way that gives us glory, like, oh, you're so good at accounting. Look at you. You keep all your debits on the left better than anybody and right on the credits. Look look at you. You are the most amazing. Use a pencil every time. You erase perfectly You are the best accountant. You do accounting to the glory of you. No, that's not how it works. All of our work that we do is to the glory of God. We do all of our work to the glory of God. The way that we do our work is not for the glory of ourselves. Our identity isn't wrapped up in our work, but even the way that we do our work is also done to the glory of God, for his glory and not ourselves. It advances um, renewal and reform, and also, of course, brings us closer to God and restores the relationship as we are obediently walking out that image of God that's in us. It's the very last one um, about being created in the image of God. Being created in the imago Dei, the image of God, means that we're also to live as Christians. The other word, Latin, corum Deo, before the face of God. The image of God means that we always live before the face of God. In other words, we are always, as Christians, living in His presence, living in the presence of God. There's not like a place in creation that you can go, you can say, where's the the place where I'm out of the presence? Oh, here's the closet of out of the presence of God. I'm going to go in here for a little while and do all my sinful stuff. Like, that's not how it works. Being created in the image of God, and that's everybody, means we live coram deo, before the face of God. So therefore, we're created to live all of our life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, by the word of God, and for the glory of God. Every moment as an image bearer is lived in front of his face and in his presence. And as a Christian, preferably for his glory. So that's all under the first one, is that man is created in the image of God. The next one I want you to see is this. So what we're going to do now is kind of take the big picture of the gospel and kind of walk through it as we talk about man creating the image of God. The second one is this. because of the fall, the image of God is now distorted but not lost. So whenever Adam was put in the garden before he chose to sin, the image of God was, was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. And as you kind of go along down through the narrative, it says that whenever they ate the fruit, all of a sudden their eyes were open. And right above that it says that they were surely die. Look in Genesis chapter 3, you can see verses 4 and verse 7. Um. There in the midst, in verse 4, the serpent came and said to the woman, you will not surely die, which is a lie. They will surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Seven, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of a fruit and ate it. There it is right there. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's the fall. That's where all of a sudden that perfect image of God Became distorted. They immediately, right there, disobeyed a command of God, and it just affected them completely. And it says in verse seven, then both of their eyes were open, and they saw that they were naked, and they tried to sew some fig leaves together and make for themselves loincloths. And as I said, if you look at three twenty-one, where God restores it, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That's, that's that picture of Him restoring the relationship in the immediate sense, of course, with Christ in the, in the future sense. But what I want us to see here is that that promise, whenever they're in the image of God, that promise of death, what happened is they would not have died physically if they had not sinned. They would have physically lived forever. Physically lived forever. But because they sinned right there and disobeyed that commandment, all of a sudden they're gonna start, man, all of us, is going to die physically. That's not all that happened. Physical death didn't enter into man's experience at that particular time, but also that relationship that they had because they had, had a perfect image of God that wasn't distorted was always perfect. They always had great relationship with God, but when they disobeyed the commandment, now spiritually that relationship with God is gone as well, and it says that they also in the Bible spiritually died. So this moment they they will now physically die, and all of us experience that, and also they spiritually died at that moment. And so since all of us are offshoots or um, children of Adam, as soon as we're born, we're automatically born spiritually dead. We're just dead as soon as we are, we're, we're born. And then because we're spiritually dead, we willingly choose to rebel against God's laws because we have this corrupt human nature, this corrupt image of God. And so we just choose to do it. And we stay spiritually dead unless we trust Christ. And then we're on that path towards Restoring completely the image of God. I'm getting ahead of myself with number three. But right here, because of the fall of the image of God, now it's all distorted, but it's not lost. So when we sin, they didn't take the image of God and kind of rip it out and say, you're on your own. We have it, but it's just distorted now. And this distorted image of God makes it so that um, we sin. We don't make good choices. Um, Since man has sinned, he's certainly not, it's like God anymore. His moral purity has been lost. Um, he doesn't reflect God's holiness perfectly. His intellect now has been corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. His speech now will no longer continually glorify God as it did. This is, all, this is how Adam operated and lived before the fall. His relationships now are governed by selfishness rather than love. Um, and though man is still in the image of God in every aspect of his life, in some parts, um, now of his life, has now been distorted and lost because of it. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says it this way. 7.29, I should say. 7.29 says, um, See, alone I have found that this God, I'm sorry, see I'm having trouble reading today, right? This is terrible. Um, Hooked on phonics didn't work. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright. So when God made man, he made him perfect. His image was perfect. He made him upright. And then it says, because of the fall, um, now they have sought out many schemes, or some translations might say devices. And just this means, now because of the fall, they go seek out all kinds of sin. So the second point is that because of the fall, the image of God now is distorted in us. It's distorted. Um. So, this distorted image of God that we experience is also not just known by Christians, but everybody. Uh, I follow Jim Gaffigan on Twitter. I don't think that's necessarily controversial, but I do follow him. Um, and. He tweeted something this past week. I, I follow him because he's hilarious, first of all. He's the Hot Pocket guy. Hot Pockets, are they really doing that guy? Um, he's just really funny. He's got five kids, and so all the things he talks about with five kids, I have, I have two. And so, like, I understand everything he's saying, and I experienced that. Like, you have five kids? What's wrong with, like, all the looks people give you, all that kind of stuff. I didn't do the home birth thing like he did, but that's really funny when he talks about it. Anyway, I'm way off subject. Um, so, anyway, he's, he's hilarious, and so I follow him on Twitter because he says funny things. Um... I don't know him personally, so I don't know if he's a Christian or not. But he said something this past week that uh, I thought was pretty insightful. This is what he said. I think he's trying to be funny, maybe. But he said this Sometimes I think it's less that I'm busy and overwhelmed and more that I'm just bad at being a human. Now, if he's not a believer, the common grace of God has led him to realize that this is the experience of us all. We're all bad at being humans. And so I thought, well, I'm going to write a blog to Jim Gaffigan. So this is my blog that I wrote to Jim Gaffigan. Back to him, I don't think he'll ever read it, but I said, interestingly enough, um, what Jim gaff I'm kind of picking up in the middle, what he's saying is not just funny, but deep and true. Without realizing, he has stumbled upon a deep, deep biblical truth. This is all helping us understand that distortion of the image of God now. That it makes us bad at being humans. Um, namely, that we are incapable of living a life that's good. None of us are good at being a human. In fact, the Bible says that being bad at a human is actually being spiritually dead. This is the common grace of God that led Gaffick into this truth. If he's not a believer, I don't know. And when he tweeted this, many of the people kind of wrote back replies and re- they retweeted it and they kind of saying this because they resonate with what, they are, what he said. They're saying this is something that they experience as well. We all experience it, every single one of us, no exceptions. And then I write, all right, there's got to be an answer. I said, there is an answer the answer, the solution, the remedy, I thought that was funny because it's Remedy Church, um, is only Jesus Christ. Jim Gaffigan, I'm bad at being a human too. I know that you'll never read this blog, but I want you to know I love you and I think you're hilarious. Also, I want you to know, just like me, you need to know Jesus Christ is the only answer for us all that are bad at being humans. He's the only one that can satisfy your soul. He's the only one that can make you whole. He's the only one that can make you the kind of human that you want to be. How does he do that? Because you get his perfect humanity. In other words, that restored image of God. Back to you and counted to you as yours through faith in him. His righteousness is His goodness and His perfection are all yours in Christ. And this is what I think is the most beautiful part about this, um, the truth. One day in heaven, we will all receive a new perfect human body. And then in heaven, finally, all of us will finally be good at being humans because of the best human ever, Jesus. Man, that's such good news. That's such good news because of Christ he is going to restore this completely, this distorted human being. Praise God he didn't remove it away from us completely and leave us on our own devices. But even though it's distorted, he's given us Christ, which puts us on this path towards restoring that image of God. That's my third point is this. The third thing about the image of God being made in the image of God is that redemption. And that's, when I've wronged the relationship, God decides to restore it. The fact that he decides and the process by which he starts restoring it, that is called redemption. And so redemption or God restoring the relationship is the progressive process of Christ recovering more of God's image. Now that it's distorted, we all realize it's not like now I'm a Christian, I live perfectly. I never sin. Everything is right. Like, that's not the case. Like We all know that. And it's very progressive. It doesn't happen overnight. It will... It will take the rest of your life. And when finally you're in heaven, it will be per- perfected. But now that we're in Christ, if you're in Christ, that distorted image of God starts being renewed and restored back unto him. It's recovering more of God's image in you. Um, the verse that I think that highlights this best is 2 Corinthians 3.18. Some people call this um, recovering of the image of God another th- Word for this is called sanctification, and that just means being set apart as holy or becoming more Christ-like. Now that you're a Christian, He wasn't, doesn't just want you to be forgiven of your sin, but He also wants you to grow in holiness. Um, and that's not, you know, now that you're doing that, you're not earning your salvation because you're completely saved. You're giving evidence of wanting to grow in holiness because Jesus has done this. And this, this verse right here in Second Corinthians three eighteen, I think is one of the best helpers of understanding this this recovering of this image of God and how sanctification happens. Um, in, in verse 18, he just got through talking about Moses. When Moses went up onto the mountain and he kind of beheld the glory of God on the mountain, um, when he came down, he was like really, really white, like whiter than me, like really, really white. And he was so white that people are like, you're so, we can't even see, like you're, you're glowing here, Moses, because he had been in the presence of the Lord. And so Paul, he's looking back at that story, and he's saying, that's the same thing. Like for us, when we behold the glory of God, we also start becoming more like him, and people see that in us. Look what, look what it says. Um, in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding, and this beholding right here, um, it can be supplied in the Greek Calvin points this out, and I think this is just interesting because when he points the fact uh, after the word beholding this little extra thing that can be added, um, he, he makes a great theological point behind it, but when he says as and we with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror that as in a mirror can be added in the in the original languages it 's not in our Bible, but it can be added and He makes a a very interesting theological point with it. But verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, back up to this particular part, because this is interesting. It says, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. Now, when I look into a mirror, like you, I see myself. Right? But he's saying, To understand this, to understand sanctification as possibly well as you can, when you look into a mirror, um, you're not necessarily, when you're looking and beholding the glory of God, instead of looking up into the heavens, instead of trying to look out and figure out where it is, you're actually looking into a mirror. And generally, when you look into an actual mirror, you see yourself. But he's saying, beholding as looking into a mirror, the glory of God. So as you look into the mirror, instead of seeing yourself, you're actually seeing the glory of God which has been given to you because of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so there's a promise there then. Literally, as a Christian, when I look into the mirror, there's a promise that I can see the glory of God. I can look in and say, look what God is doing to me. Look at the glory of God that's being revealed in me. Look at how I'm growing in sanctification. And that is very encouraging. That makes me want to say, yes, this image of God is certainly being restored. I can see progress happening in my life. And this... The the connotation of this as it's being written isn't that when you look, maybe it's there. It's when you look, if you're in Christ, it's there. Behold it. It's there and let it be the thing that encourages you that says you are making progress in the faith. I mean, this is just absolutely astounding as you drill down into that verse and say, wow, amazing. There's a definite promise that there is really a recovery happening on the image of God or I am being sanctified. What an amazing promise that he's telling me here. Which brings me to my last one. Um, when Christ returns, or we're called home, before that, man will be completely restored into God's image. So this image has now on its pathway towards being reconciled, restored back to, but what we want is the original state. And when we're finally called home, or we die, we're ushered into his kingdom, and then we are brought back to the original state of, where, of the way Adam was before the fall. And this is shown to us in just a couple pages over in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, let me try to help us understand what Paul is saying here. How, how certain are you that you're a human being? <laughs> you're like, Fudd, what are you talking about? Of course I'm certain. I'm not sure about these guys, but I'm pretty certain about myself. I feel stuff, I feel stuff. Well, that, that's, the, that's the argument that Paul is trying to make here in that As absolutely certain that you are. I know I just messed up some of you. Like, I don't know now, am I? Um, (laughs) That's the whole thing i got to study now. But my my whole point is, as certain as you are. You don't need to question that. You are. As certain as you are that you're a human being. As absolutely certain as you are. Paul says, because that's so certain, the fact that you will be glorified is just as certain. Look what it says here in 1 Corinthians 15. I wrote down 49, but we'll start in 45 and we'll, we'll trace his argument. Look what he says in 45. Thus it was written the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, that's Jesus, um, became a life giving spirit. So he's trying to help us see Adam became a physical body, Jesus became the life giving spirit, the, the spiritual body. Verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. So Adam came first, then the spiritual Jesus. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, the man of dust. We'd read that already in Genesis 2. The second man is from heaven. So Adam was formed out of dust. Jesus came from heaven. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, he is a human. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. We're absolutely certain that we're human and that we're from the dust. And if we're in Christ, so as so when he says, so as the one that is from heaven, those that are from heaven, if we're in Christ, just as sure as Jesus is completely restored back to and is Christ in heaven, those that are his will be restored back to and be in heaven with him. Look, and he finishes it with 49. Just as we have been born, the image of the man of dust We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Promise right there. Your image of God will be just as sure as Jesus is in heaven and is perfected. We will be restored back into that perfected image of God status. I mean, that's just amazing. The promise is right there in the scriptures that this is going to absolutely happen as sure as we're human right now, and Jesus is God perfected up in heaven, we will be restored into that one day whenever we're finally taken home or Christ calls us home or we die. The image of God will be restored. So as we're looking at the image of God, I didn't want to just harp on the fact that we're radically sinful and terrible, but also bring some balance with the image of God and what are all the implications of what that means. So now I just want to end with a couple applications and then we'll be done. So what does it mean then if you're going to before Jesus calls you home, hopefully the Lord gives you lots of years here. Um, what does that mean then? What does the image of ma- or the, the doctrine of man mean then for me in everyday life? Specifically, how that relates to being made in the image of God. The first one is that we we image God or we understand the image of God in us by connecting with Him in an informed, passionate way through repentance of sin and believing in Jesus and living an ongoing life of humility and repentance. So we realize that. We couldn't restore the relationship that he is the one that did it. He restored it by sending Jesus. And so our life is um, shown out to be now a life of humble repentance, gracious gratitude that he would be so willing to come and make this relationship right. The image of God teaches us that because it was marred and now it's being restored. The next one is this, that we also image God by, we, we show that we understand this image of God inside of us by accurately following the example of Jesus where he, by, by submitting to people. So since he submitted to the will of the Father, we image God best by also mit- submitting to the authority structures that are around us. So as citizens, we submit to our government. As children, they should submit to their parents. As employees, you should submit to your employers. All the structures around you, we image God best by submitting to these um, structures that God has put around us. Wives would submit to their husbands. Children should submit to their parents. Church members, if you have joined as a member, you are putting yourself willingly, not begrudgingly, or being forced, but yet, yes, I want to be a member of this church. Then you're saying, yes, I also want to submit to the church leadership. Um, we image God best by submitting to the, to the authorities that have been placed over us by him. The next way that we image God best is by advancing his kingdom. And as we advance his kingdom, demonstrating his justice Um, And as we demonstrate his justice, that can be by evangelization. You need to be reconciled back to God. God's put all of his righteous justice on Jesus for you. You can be completely forgiven of sin. But that can also be done in social justice. Um, We have to be careful that's not the gospel. But certainly, we image God best also by fighting against injustice in this world. Some of the best things that image bearers can do is fight injustice like sex trafficking, or name all the injustices in the world. They're, they're everywhere. Image bearers fight injustice. Um, we work for justice and mercy, not against it. Next thing about being an image bearer is that we respect all life. Image bearers should respect all life and do everything they can to protect and make right um, the sick or the elderly or the oppressed or the weak Or the unborn. I guess you can't necessarily change the elderly. They're going to keep getting old. But the rest, we certainly can go and we can try to do something. We can protect the elderly. We protect the sick. We protect the oppressed. Christians really missed the boat on this 50 years ago in America. 100 years ago, especially in America when it came to slavery. The oppressed, Christians should have been on the forefront of protecting them. And they missed out. They missed out. Some Christians were. I don't want to say they all missed out. But Christians have to live um, as image bearers respecting all life, the elderly and the unborn. That's the way we image God the best. The next way we image God best is by, and this is so huge, I talked about this in the very beginning, refusing, refusing to allow ourselves to live as autonomous selves, but instead putting ourselves in community. God, the Trinity, is in community. And we image God best by being in biblical community. Not by being autonomous islands all by ourselves saying, I got this. I can do this. And lastly is this. The way we image God best is as Christians, and any really image bearer, but certainly Christians, we suffer well. Christ Jesus our Lord suffered well, who is in the image of God. So when real trials of pain come, when real trials of loss come, when real hardships come and hurts come, I'm not discounting them whatsoever. Those are real. And because they're real, we shed real tears in the midst of pain. But also, as his followers and his image bearers, we suffer well, like our Lord Jesus Christ, when he imaged God perfectly on the cross when he suffered. He imaged as He was the one that took the initiative to restore the relationship with us by absorbing as we're supposed to be the ones that are to go out and fight against injustice. He's the one that took all of the justice of God on Himself at the cross. Just as we're supposed to go out and submit to the authority structures, He imaged the Lord by submitting to the will of the Father when He received all the righteous justice of God put on him instead of us at the cross, providing for us a way now to be reconciled back to God through faith in him. The image of God is an amazingly gospel-centric doctrine showing us that just because the image of God is there and it's been distorted, that Christ from eternity past has always had a plan to restore us and it was not up to us to restore it praise god because all I want to do is take the initiative and do it but we can't but god out of his infinite love because he created us in his image way more important than any other created thing took the initiative and listen pursued your heart not the person beside you not the christian that you think's awesome your heart god came and restored you back he took the initiative because he loves you more than you could ever conceive and made everything right through repentance and faith because of his mercy (laughs) what an amazing reason to worship what an amazing reason to worship and obey this great savior we have So wherever you are, I just invite you to, however the image of God inside of you is wired to respond to great truths like this, be obedient to that. Whatever outward forms the image of God tells you to respond in worship, just be obedient to it. Don't worry about the person beside you. Move down if you can't sing well. Whatever. We're okay with that. I don't sing well either. Respond. Respond the way that he's wired you to respond. And, not just in this room, respond as you go and live a life of worship this entire week. Your life is a worship service. This isn't a worship service. This is it, well, it is, but it's not the only thing. Like, your life is a worship service unto God. Respond as image bearers throughout this entire city, everybody you come into contact with. If you don't know Christ, you are loved by God made in his image, and you have amazing dignity, value, and worth. So much so that he would send his son. I want you to know him. Please talk to me today. I would love to be able to tell you how to come to know Christ. How to be restored back as we've been talking about. I'm gonna close in prayer and Ben will lead us in worship through song. (coughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for this doctrine, the doctrine of man. We know that as we study it, we study the doctrine of God first because you are far more important than we are. But still, you would say (laughs) that we are very important and loved by you. The crown jewel of your creation, made in your image and likeness, created with dignity, value, and worth, And because of that, we can't even conceive how much you love us. But you took the initiative. You're the one that restored the relationship through Christ. And so I pray that we respond with deep love and affections and emotions, appropriate love towards you. The concept of love was put in us to help us understand your love for us not just the horizontal, but namely the vertical. Be with us now as we worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.